Welcome to MMU, Murdered, Missing, Unsolved. Across this series of episodes, I talk to the first British journalist to arrive at the scene of what became the most infamous missing person case of a generation, Madeleine McCann. The McCanns had no idea what they were walking into, what holiday they were booking. From his base in southern Spain, I discussed the case with author John Clark, who guides us through his search for the monster at the dark heart of this tragic crime. I needed to understand what created this monster and how he got away with it. Madeleine McCann, the chief suspect. John, the Madeleine McCann story is truly and utterly unique. Explain why that is. It's amazing, really, that some 15 years on, the Madeleine McCann case is probably as big now as it was back then. And really, the impact of this unfortunate missing girl is remarkable. When you think how many missing children there are globally every year, I think there's currently around a million plus missing children. I think 300 and something thousand in America and around 60,000 in the UK. Obviously, a lot of those are just sort of runaways, but still one or two percent of those are trafficked or snatched children, which is tens of thousands every year. So why this one missing girl on a holiday in Portugal in 2007 should be such big news is actually quite remarkable. I guess it boils down to a few key factors, really. One, the parents and how quickly they got onto it, how keen they were to get the story out and how organized they were. Also, how the press latched onto this young girl, what she looked like, how pretty she was, a blue-eyed, blonde-haired girl. That obviously struck a chord with many, many middle classes and, and newspaper and readers and TV watchers and news watchers in the UK, but also globally. So I think that that's really one of the main reasons that we're still talking about Madeleine McCann 15 years on. For me, I look at this, you go back to the Charles Lindbergh baby to get something of such a gargantuan and international phenomenon around a missing child. And I am persuaded by the fact that there's really interesting criminological points about this. She's blue eyed, she's blonde, she belonged to a middle class parents, doctors, highly connected. There was a church connection, there was a political connections. And before long, there was this extraordinary media scrum of which you were an early part. Explain that. Well, yeah, Donald, I've been living in Spain Ronda in uh, Malaga for about not that long actually a couple of years so I got a very very early morning phone call I worked for the Daily Mail and the Mail on Sunday back in in London for many years and so when I moved to Spain I continued my my journalistic career so I frequently would be sent out on jobs all around Spain and the islands it was a bit unusual and it was it was earlier than normal. I probably normally get a call around eight o'clock or eight thirty. This was at about seven or half past six in the morning. It's very, very early to be woken up by by the Daily Mail foreign desk. And can you get to the Algarve as soon as possible? There's a girl gone missing, a British girl. And I was like, Really? All that way. Are you sure? And I said, Yes, just just get going. It's a place called Pradaluge. It's the Ocean Club. She went missing last night. We want you to to go and investigate. You don't really ask questions, Donald, at that point. You pack your bag, uh, you know, your bag's normally semi-packed, jump in the car and, and off you go. And that's what happened. And I suppose what was unusual about this is that the kid was reported missing around 10.20, 10.30 the night before. Within 12 hours, an entire international media scrum is beginning to avalanche its way to the small Portuguese 
seaside village. Which is culturally very different there. I don't know if you're aware that there they normally keep it completely under wraps. Don't say anything at all. Don't tell the press. Quietly try and go about working out where the child's gone. I think the McCanns themselves had to kind of realise that the police were a bit sleepy, not doing very much. And quite frankly, they better sort of stir up this kind of hell of a storm, this massive shitstorm, and make sure that the world knew that their little daughter had, in their opinion, been snatched. And I, I agree with them, actually. And I think that they needed everybody to be on the case because they just feared there wasn't enough being done. So they, they called various friends of theirs who worked in the media. And one guy called John in particular, I think, called Sky News. I think he called the, the Mail. He called uh, BBC. The word just got out. It spread very quickly. The early bulletins on the TV, I think the first bulletin was around 8.30 on ITN, I think it was. Very, very soon followed by Sky. Every single broadsheet, tabloids, newspaper from the UK, plus every radio station, TV station had someone down there by the end of that first, well, that second day, you know, the day after she went missing. And not only did they contact the media, but they also contacted the Foreign Office and they had political heavyweights operating for them and in their interests overnight nearly. We shouldn't forget that the golden hours are vital, aren't they, in any case like this? And they did get the Foreign Office involved and the British Consul was quickly involved in the Algarve. And, and in fact, the ambassador, John Buck, down pretty sharpish the next day, I think. I don't know the McCanns, but I've, I've obviously followed the case and I have met them very briefly that first day. And you could tell they're a very professional, organised couple and they knew what they needed to do. I think they might look back now and, and slightly regret that, but they certainly managed to get a lot of global interest in their child very quickly. For everything that they believed they were doing in the interests of their missing child, that had a flip side because what they were doing was such an unusual pathway, particularly in Portugal. So in many ways, as much as it helped the investigation, it also turned the spotlight directly upon them. That's right. Well, it hindered them in two ways. One, of course, because any possible kidnapper would have seen this a huge media storm brewing and, of course, would have panicked over this child. And so that, on one hand, potentially would have tried to get rid of the evidence very quickly. But secondly, as you point out, the Portuguese and indeed the Spanish, culturally very different, very suspicious of people leaving their kids in apartments and not being uh, on top of them and not playing around with them all the time in the evening. So they, immediately there was suspicion raised. Immediately they didn't understand why they hadn't been with them at dinner at the restaurant that night. I think they also, there was a sense that, well, who are these people to come in here and tell us our police what to do and to bring in the British police and we've got a perfectly good police force. Oh, and you know, by the way, there's no sex offenders living in Pradaluche. There's no problems like this in Pradaluche. The Algarve's a safe place for tourism. I mean, this is ridiculous to suggest that it's rife with paedophiles and our daughter could have been snatched by one. So in many ways, the family were kind of caught between a cultural war, a reputational war around tourism, and of course, the sense, and this is the correct sense, that those closest to the missing child should immediately be the first suspects. That is rational and that's reasonable and understandable. Of course it is, uh, Donald, and you'll know that, that in 75% of all occasions the children go missing or are killed, it's the family and friends who are involved, right? It would be logical, obviously, to look at them, but maybe they might study the demographics of their holiday and their group. Now, they were there with five professional friends in three other families, and they were doctors. That's not to say that doctors couldn't, of course, kill their children, but if they looked at this early on, it didn't look likely that they'd killed their child. I mean, it wasn't logical that they'd kill their child and their friends would all back them up and support them. So I think that's why initially police 
looked into other avenues. In fact, I remember very early, very, very uh, distinctly those first few days, they said she's been kidnapped. She's within, I think they said within seven miles. We know where she is. We're talking to the kidnappers. I think they said, I don't understand that to that day. Did they actually have any suggestion or hint that they knew who had her? It was such an unusual constellation around events. But because of those, the family's behaviour, the behaviour of the police and the neurosis around the reputation of the Algarve as a safe place for a holiday. So you had a billion euro industry nearly in the hands of the international press. But I also think those footprints really still sit heavily in the sand of this story still and probably point to the reason why this story has become such a toxic story for journalists and commentators to cover. This is a story where, and I've reported upon it over many years in various iterations, I found myself the subject of all sorts of bizarre accusations, allegations that I'm acting for the Vatican. I mean, it really is a story where unless your narrative aligns with that of somebody online, you're going to be attacked by an army of either McCann haters or McCann lovers. It's polarised opinion and it's that there are so many trolls out there and they're very, very aggressive in the way they behave. They will track people down and they will locate your home and they will find any chinks in your armour. They accused me of being there the night before. The favourite one was saying that I could have been working for MI5. And of course, because she'd been killed a few days before, they needed an army of people to be there to help tidy up. And I'm on Team McCann. And I mean, I actually, Martin Brunt at Sky was telling me how they accused, they said he had a house bought for him in Pradeluge from the proceeds of all his work he'd done on behalf of the McCanns. This one guy's written a book and he's got 27 or 30 chapters of which four chapters of his book are dedicated just to me. I mean, entirely to me. I counted how many words there were in another blog. 10,000 words had been written about me, about me lying. And I'm a disgraced reporter. I'm a yellow reporter. I've made it up. I'm a liar, Donald. I'm, I'm the lowest of the low. And I'm kind of thinking, all I'm trying to do is my job here. I got there. Yes, I was reporting on it. But at the same time, I wanted to find this child. There was a kind of part of me that's a father, family man. I wanted to find her. Primarily, my job was to pull together as best I could this story so that people back home could understand what was happening. You know, that was my job, simply. So I just wanted to kind of emphasize the fact that this is a neurotic, toxic constellation of contested events and narratives. And at the end of the day, you put yourself out there as a really experienced journalist who's covered a multitude of various stories and you covered for all the various newspapers. And suddenly you're caught in this vortex and you've been assaulted verbally and online. But at the end of the day, you're a committed journalist just trying to get to the truth, but no greater agenda than that. Then the truth is, you got to look at it. And, and, you know, even in even themselves, of course, when did Maddie exactly go missing? What time were they searching in the apartment? What time did they arrive exactly? They don't even know because, you know, they're out on holiday. They were enjoying themselves. They were going around, checking on each other's apartments. Some of them were checking better than others at certain times. You know, they were listening to, they listened properly. And so, of course, there's so much conjecture, isn't there? Just, just amongst the own family, you know, it could be five minutes here, 10 minutes there. How do we we ever know. So you got the call and your bag is always semi-packed as a professional journalist and reporter. How did you make your journey and what happened in the first hours? Tell you what, back then it was right in the early days living in Spain. I did have a young daughter, but I still had my Subaru Impreza that I brought over from England. So it was like shit off a shovel. So it's incredibly quick. 
chucked my uh, bag in the back of the car and whizzed off. And if you know Ronda, the, the Serenia de Ronda in southern Spain, it's a beautiful neck of the woods. It's sort of mountainous, hilly, and the roads are empty. At that time in the morning, there's not a single car and the roads are wonderful. You know, all the money that came down from Brussels. It's a dream driving to Seville. And then you go around the Seville Ring Road, ideally nice and early before the rush hour. And then it's a sort of straight, long, flat road all the way past Doñana National Park, all the way to Huelva, and then across the border into Portugal. That time in the morning, it's pretty beautiful. It's quite magical. Been pretty hot. It's been unseasonably hot, actually. And that's one of the points I always remember at the time, being absolutely sure that Jerry couldn't have gone out and buried his daughter because it was so hot. It had been such a hot April that the ground was rock hard and, and it was very dry. So I, I got there. And of course, you lose an hour. Different time zone in Spain because, of course, Franco wanted to be on the same time zone as Germany, having uh, you know supported Hitler in the Second World War and Mussolini. Say I arrived in Portugal at 9.30 Spanish time, or say 10 o'clock. Spanish time. That's about nine o'clock Portuguese time. I remember Ocean Club. Where is it? Oh, there it is. Found it pretty quickly. And arriving and thinking this is supposedly the Ocean Club. I discovered it meant to be a Mark Warner resort. And I don't know if you remember, Donald, when you were growing up, you're about my age. You know, that was a sort of the pinnacle of middle-class achievement, wasn't it? Going to a Mark Warner holiday, you know, and some in Greece or wherever it was and Portugal, Spain. You expected this wonderful sort of enclave, fences and security guards. But it was just a series of blocks of flats intersected with public roads that sort of drove all round it. It's kind of like a square grid-like system and there's a pool and tennis courts in there and of course then there are flats overlooking it. I think one of the early points of contention is the tapas bar people had said was in a direct line of sight, which is not the case. Not quite. It's in the line of sight I think there's four families, so it's in line of sight, I think it's three out of the four families. They could just about make out the top of the window the patio window, but you couldn't quite see it. One of the mis- misconceptions is that people think it must be miles away I can't believe they left the kids such a long way. It's not actually that far at all. It's actually remarkably near. The proximity for me is never but the issue. The issue is that as the crow flies, it's 150 metres maybe. The bottom line is whether you would do it anyway, right? I, I, well, I think that's, that goes back to the point that it was supposedly the Ocean Club Mark Warner holiday and they'd all booked this quite expensive tennis holiday. And I think they would have expected fairly good security and people, video cameras and people watching out for them. I mean, when they first got there, they thought the apartment was lovely. It was a big area apartment, nice views. But I think they, they hadn't really thought, hold on a minute, this is really a, a wide open. You can get to it by two public roads either side and just behind the flat. There's a kind of alleyway that's still there today, actually. It's an amazing alleyway that you could just sort of saunter in and wander around and I think take your peek here and there and everywhere. And this is an expensive holiday, Donald. This is not a cheap holiday. So what kind of security measures did you encounter when you arrived? I got there. I able to park my car outside. I mean, there wasn't any great roadblock or anything. At this point in the morning, there were, I would say there were probably seven or eight people. There was definitely a policeman around the front, one or two policemen and a big line. And then on the side, you could see the gate, this tiny little picket fence gate. And there was a tiny flimsy little bit of yellow police tape and a small note that says, do not enter or something like that. You know, the sort of note that as a journalist, you'd completely ignore. I remember bumping into Robert Murray outside and having a quick chat with him. And I'm not sure if it's before or after I went in, but you know, don't know what it's like. You just go about your job. And I parked my car quickly and I walked up the steps underneath this little flimsy bit of tape. I just sort of went up to the door and it must have been a 9, 9, 15, 9, 20, 9, 30. Do you know I did exactly what time? I looked in there and the door was open. I just sort of knocked. I'm here from the Daily Mail. I've just arrived from Spain. I'd really like to try and work out a bit more about what's going on. And of course, the McCann's were there. 
they were really, really sort of frantically just trying to work out what the hell was going on. And they went off to do a police report, a missing child report, at the police station in Portimao. I could have literally just walked into the apartment and been one of the 26 or 27 people who'd walked around the apartment and left their DNA around the apartment. Of course, I didn't. I said, thanks, well, I'll do my best. And they were like, thanks. I wish I'd just grabbed them for five minutes just to a proper chat, you know, proper interview. I didn't press it. I didn't feel it was the right thing to do. Was there a, an era of foreboding at that stage? You know, I thought as I drove, minding my own business and thinking as you do in the morning, listen to Radio 3, a bit of music, I just thought she's going to be found. She's either going to be in the swimming pool dead or she's going to have been found hiding under a cupboard or whatever. There's no way I'm going to arrive there three hours, 45 minutes later, and she's still missing. So you unusually met Robert Murat, who was the first Aguido man under official suspicion. What role was he playing there when you met him? Was he just an interested bystander? Yeah, at that point, he was just, it seemed like he was hanging around like a bad smell. I mean, he was just sort of there. He was taking an interest. And when he, the minute I said, oh, look, I've come from Spain, I'm a reporter, I'm a journalist. And by the time I should point out, I had two phone calls on route, one from the Sun and one from the Mirror, you know, the Holy Trinity of British tabloids. Everyone was really taking an interest in this story. So I, I kind of found myself arriving on an order from three papers. Although I did a lot for the mail, I wasn't officially a stringer or a correspondent, so I could work for anyone. You were an agency for hire. But describe Robert Murat physically, because his physical description was to become important later on. You know, he was just sort of like bumbling guy, quite polite, quite posh, typical expat. He kind of seemed to know quite a lot about what was going on. I think I got the sense he'd been up through the night. I've since discovered he hadn't been. I've since discovered he'd actually had taken a couple of late night phone calls at 11 that he couldn't remember and then went to bed. The next morning, he seemed to know quite a lot about what was happening. And I don't remember, if, as I said, I don't remember if I talked to him before I went up the steps or after. Laterally, there was some suggestion that he was playing the role of a intermediary or a translator for the Portuguese police. And That's right. And we mustn't forget that, that actually, in the end, he had worked for East Anglia police, Suffolk police, I think, as a translator. He was bilingual because he partly grew up in Portugal. And he early on offered his services to help in translation. And I assume he got paid for it. His name is on a lot of those documents, a lot of those translated documents, people, witnesses, people who live nearby. I don't think he was officially on the books. I still think most of the Portuguese speak English and I feel like they should have had a professional translator in a case like this of a missing child. They should have had someone there at the crack of dawn. I suppose nobody at that stage could have imagined every single dot and every single T would garner such significance and come under such forensic microscopic examination. I agree, but don't, let's not forget, Donald, in the year before this had happened, you've got at least, at least 10 British families complaining about their children being abused in apartments by weirdos sneaking into their apartments. You've got a German kid on the beach just four weeks before, very nearby, who got grabbed by some naked man and, and molested. They know there's a lot of these people around and there's stuff going on. There was an elderly woman who was raped. Now, I spoke to a few people last week in Prada Luge who'd been there all their lives. They had no idea that happened. How was Prada Luge being sold at the time? Were they saying that this sex crimes never happened? When did the truth about this begin to emerge? Everyone I spoke to was saying oh, there's been no cases like this. You know, the Algarve's a safe place. Another case we'll come to later, Hazel Behan. She was told, look, you don't want to report this, do you? You don't want this to go, you don't want to publicise this. They pressurised her into pretty much 
keeping it quiet. 20 years old, Donald, you know, really pretty, beautiful, vibrant Irish girl working over there. And that ruined her life, this rape. They wanted to keep it quiet because it was bad for business to publicise it. Bad business to accept that they had 600 plus sex offenders living just around the area in this lovely little resort. And, you know, you've been there a number of times. You know what it's like. It's just got this funny little underbelly, hasn't it? This dark underbelly, Pradeluge and Lagos, that part of the Algarve. You can sense it. And what did you sense when you started asking questions and digging around the area on the first day? Basic breakdown the first day was I arrived, as I said, around 9, 9.30, thereabouts. And at that time, there were a couple of local police officers, GNR, at the front of the house, no one at the back. There may have been a journalist from one of the local papers there, a guy called Len Ports. He works for a newspaper called The Algarve Resident. He's very anti, seemingly, from what I've read, quite anti the McCanns. I think he believes there may be some sort of conspiracy there. And as I said, Murat was there. And, and, and quite a few other kind of expats floating around, people trying to help look for, for Maddie. There were a few people like, you know, still searching. Some of them been up through the night. They were up again. They were producing pamphlets with a picture of her on it, a very rudimentary pamphlet with a name missing. Have you seen this girl? Oh, I wish I'd kept one of them. I grabbed a, a stack full, I don't know, 20 or so. And I went round. I remember leaving one in the supermarket, putting it up on the pegboard in the supermarket. And I remember then going round and putting it on street corners. I got some sellotape from someone. And so I kind of was sort of almost doing a bit of searching as well as reporting. You know, I remember going round the corner and walking round, and there was actually some roadmen working in a trench, two workmen digging away in this trench and I'd say it's at least a metre and a half deep I just thought crikey you know does she go in here to this day I think that's remarkable I'm not sure if they've ever dug up the trench but I said to the guys have you heard about this girl no so there's this girl, look, you know, and I showed her the A4 poster and they were like, no, no, no. So, well, there's a girl gone missing, you know, can you look in your trench basically and see if you can see anyone? They were like, you shrugged their shoulders, like, you know, leave us alone. I can remember kind of walking off out of the town, actually going right off into the countryside and finding various tracks, you know, I'm poking around and there's quite a lot of empty ruined houses and farmhouses. I'm talking like up to a dozen. I just kept thinking, you know, is she going to be in one of these? Thankfully not. To this day, I'm pretty sure that I walked right past Christian Bruckner's house where he'd rented for seven years, no less, in this amazing place, like a bird's nest that looked right down across Pradeluge. I mean, it was, it was like an eagle's nest. The uh, McCanns used to go running up there past it, unbeknownst to them that he'd been living there. When Jerry went running, it was one of those iconic kind of images that people felt, I think, unfairly. How can this guy be so distracted? Or how can this guy go running at a time like this? You've got to hold it together, haven't you? I mean, you know, they're professional middle-class people. People forget this, right, Donald? They're doctors. She's a GP. He's a surgeon. Things they've seen, the amount of times they've had to hold it together as a reported to family members about a loved one dying or having cancer or having a horrific operation that's going to leave them scarred for life or unable to walk. You're used to, in that profession, holding it together, aren't you? You're used to being professional. That's one of the fundamental issues at play here. I mean, the whole trolling that's gone on. People just don't understand why they couldn't show more emotion, why they couldn't, why they didn't lose it, why they were able to hold it together. And again, I go back to the very beginning. If you see them, there's so much pent up tension and, and anguish, but it's it's controlled. They're holding it together, Donald. You know, they're just managing to hold it together. And do you think that because they were holding it together and they were trying to keep their emotions in check, that that's part of the reasons why a lot of suspicion began to alight upon them very irrationally, but it did so? Yeah, I think they, they don't understand why a woman wouldn't just collapse in floods of tears. I was talking to a guy whose mother actually owns a, an apartment two floors above the McCanns, or actually maybe it's directly above the McCanns. She just said she heard Kate 
just howling at nights, three nights in a row, like in particular the first night, just for, for an hour, you know, howling, like just in absolute pain and agony. She said she never, ever heard such horrible howling and, and pain and grief. They just wanted to hold it together for the cameras, I think, and for the media. And you talk of holding it together for the media. You were there for the first press conference. What was the mood? I've been walking all around the resort and I've been everywhere. I've kind of looked in every nook and cranny. I've talked to everyone I could possibly talk to, you know, probably hundreds of people. And I've kind of drawn blanks everywhere. I sort of massive surface back at sort of Ocean Club HQ at around five. I think the press conference was just late. I think it was around nine or 9.30. It was already dark. By then, the TV networks had arrived from the UK. The Portuguese networks were there. Portugal's never had anything like this before. No one's ever done a press conference about a missing child before in Portugal. They've certainly not done it outside in the streets, impromptu press conference outside the apartment where she's supposedly been snatched. And so there's a lot of kind of nervous energy. No one's quite sure what's happening and no one's quite sure who's going to appear, who's going to speak. And by this point, I don't really need to be there, to be fair. All the guys I'm reporting for are there. I mean, really, like any good freelance investigative journalist or Sunday news journalist, which is more what I specialise in, I should have been elsewhere looking for leads, chasing leads and doing other things. But there was something about this case I needed to be there. I, needed, I felt like I needed to see them again. I needed to understand what was happening. We sort of stood around, mingled for about half an hour, 20 minutes. And then suddenly out of one of the apartments, upstairs apartments, came Kate and Jerry. They stood in front of the cameras. He put his arm around her and he, she just had that famous cuddle cat just strangling it. Like you could just see her hand in the veins and she was just holding it together somehow. It's 24 hours later. This is just terrific. I don't know if they'd actually almost timed it to the time, 24 hours to the moment she would have been taken. Jerry read out this extremely moving speech about please bring our daughter back. That sticks in my mind. It was it was just amazing. And it was, I don't know, people can say, look back and see, watch that and say, oh, they made it up. They were acting. No, they weren't. I mean, it was so clear that they were going through hell. Everyone just sort of was in total silence. There were no questions afterwards. And they went off, they walked off afterwards. But all these journalists, all these TV journalists, we've all got kids and we've all been on holiday in places like this. And we're thinking, Jesus, you know? I've got a two-year-old. Words cannot describe the anguish and despair that we are feeling as the parents of our beautiful daughter, Madeline. We request that anyone who may have any information related to Madeline's disappearance, no matter how trivial, contact the Portuguese police and help us get her back safely. Please, if you have Madeline, let her come home to her mummy, daddy, brother and sister. As everyone can understand how distressing the current situation is, we ask that our privacy is respected to allow us to continue assisting the police in their investigation. Thank you. To find out more about the case and what we've discussed in this episode, John Clark's book, My Search for Madeline, is available now. Murdered Missing Unsolved is presented by me, Donald McIntyre, and produced by Inherent Productions and Steve Langridge. Music is by Alex Sane, and additional audio production by John Franklin Audio. <laughs>